0: I'm the manager of exhibitions and public programs here at the George Eastman Museum. Uh, the Focus 45 uh, series is a monthly series of talks uh, on one Saturday a month that presents different projects going on around the museum, uh, whether it's by staff or researchers who are utilizing the collection for their own work. Uh, it kind of gives uh, our audiences a glimpse into what are the things that happen behind closed doors here, what are the things that You know, we have all of our great exhibitions and displays, but there's so much other stuff going on at the museum. Um, So, today's talk is with uh, Jesse Pierce. I'm gonna ask Kathy Connor uh, to come up here in a second to do a quick introduction for Jesse, but I just wanted to uh, remind everyone that next month, um, on April 6th, is gonna be our next Focus 45, uh, and that's actually gonna be with me, um this is the first focus 45 i've done and i've been overseeing this series for almost five years now so um and i'm going to be talking with one of my colleagues uh emily phoenix who is our chief object preparator uh we're going to be talking about the the other half of my ex my job the exhibition side of things we're going to be giving kind of a behind the scenes glimpse of uh, what goes on to put together an exhibition Uh, a lot of behind the scenes photos of some of our installs of some of the more complicated Uh, shows that we've done. It's some really cool videos and stuff that will be included in it. So uh, please come out on April 6th for that talk as well. Um, So uh, for now, I'll turn it over to Kathy and we'll get moving along. Thanks.
1: Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you so much for coming. You're all in for a real treat. Nick, I think we do need a few more um, chairs, because there's people standing. There is one right up front here and one right in the center, If you don't mind uh, sitting separately. okay? Um, for those that I don't know, and I know most of you in the crowd, my name is Kathy Connor, and I'm the curator of the George Eastman Legacy and the Landscape Collections here at the George Eastman Museum. One of my key things is to work with Jesse Pierce, your speaker today. He is the archivist in the collection. He has, been, he has the privilege of reading George Eastman's letters on a regular basis, um, cataloging them, accessioning them, and now them into our database. And we're now really in full swing trying to get them all digitized and online so people even outside of Rochester can access them. Um, he does this talk in um, sort of conjunction with the Dutch Connection exhibition every year, our flower show. That's done. We have a few flowers left in the Palm House, but for the most part, that's done but it's our look back at what George Eastman was doing 100 years ago. Okay, so this year, 2019, he's going to talk about what Eastman was involved with in 1919. Now Jesse has a B.A. in History from St. John Fisher College. He also has a Museum Studies Certificate from that same school. Um, In addition to working here, Jesse is also an avid bicyclist. If you don't see the big bicycle with the fat tires that's parked, Every day at our side door, our port-to-share entrance, he literally goes back and forth to work every day, even in this inclement weather, with this big bike. And he teaches bike safety in our community. One thing you might not know about Jesse is that he's an avid genealogist as well, and he's been working on his family genealogy for many years. Jesse is married to a lovely wife, Sarah, who is here in the audience today, and has two wonderful kids, both Mackenzie and Aiden, who I was thrilled came today to listen to their dad speak. And it is my pleasure, as always, to introduce my friend and colleague, Jesse Pierce.
2: All right, uh, good crowd. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming today. Aiden and Mackenzie, I hope you stay awake. <laughs> uh, so, this is always fun. Uh, I actually will be celebrating my ninth anniversary here at the George Eastman Museum next month, mm-hmm. which means that this is my ninth time. Uh, taking a year-by-year look at George Eastman's life, so the years 1911 to uh, 1919, 1920, I know very well. And every year I do this exhibit, examining what Eastman was up to a hundred years prior. And in past years, when I've done this talk in this exhibit, there really hasn't been a convenient, easy, overarching theme for each particular year. But this year there is and its expansion, and I hope that becomes evident in the slides that follow. Uh, I did want to point out the picture here of Eastman uh, in September 1919. You can sli- it's, kind of, it's kind of hard to see, but he has a mustache, and the last picture I see of him with a mustache was in the 1890s, so he, he even started experimenting uh, with the mustache in 1919. But so Let's get started. This is a very packed presentation. If we could save all the uh, questions to the end, uh, I think it would go uh, pretty smooth that way. So uh, who here uh, was here last year for the 1918 presentation? I'm just curious. So last year, I talked about his last uh, day was his New Year's Eve party that he had thrown. And remember, the war was over. The armistice was signed. The details of the Treaty of Versailles were still being worked out, but the war was over. And Rochester was jubilant. The country was jubilant. George Eastman was uh, jubilant, and he threw a big party at the end of the year, 1918. Eastman had many parties here at his mansion, and uh, this, out of all the parties that he ever threw, that's the one that I would most want to be at. It was just this jubilant celebration that the war was over, the boys were gonna come home. Uh, they had this uh, opera singer, Richard Donnelly that came. Uh, they projected movies and war footage onto the wall in the conservatory, and the organist uh, had a mirror right next to the organ console and he was looking back at the movies being shown on the other walls so we could play music along to it. They had a, 130 guests, many young people uh, at midnight. Uh, Rush Reese, the president of University of Rochester, made this impassioned speech about uh, the end of the war and better days to come and they danced past 3 a.m. So that spirit not only carries into 1919, but of course it carries into the Roaring Twenties. So it's like you go straight from World War I to the Roaring Twenties, and uh, it's just an expanded horizons here to talk about. So again, the war was over. Uh, George Eastman was very optimistic going into 1919, uh, optimistic in regard to the future. Uh, as I discussed at length last year, Kodak was involved in a variety of war efforts. Uh, they made gas masks, uh, periscopes, Uh, eyeglasses, all sorts of things that were used in the war effort. With the end of the war, they obviously stopped making those things, and they could go back to making a lot of their consumer products that they really couldn't make when they were making uh, munitions for the government. And Eastman, therefore, expected business to boom right away. And he looked forward to the period of Reconstruction, and he very much looked forward to the USA seizing the opportunity and kind of penetrating the world with its products. Uh, So that's another level of this expanded. Uh, horizons was just with Kodak uh, penetrating foreign markets uh, after the war. So a big theme of 1919 was the returning soldiers. Uh, Eastman joined a local committee uh, to arrange for the reception and entertainment of returning soldiers and that parade that you see there on the left is a Rochester parade. And then George Eastman did make a special trip down to New York City. He rented a second floor uh, uh story building um overlooking this parade of union square because he wanted to see the troops uh returning there uh under the triumphal arch so the returning uh soldiers was an important part of 1919. um so kodak did have to tweak its messaging with the war being over uh, one of the main focuses of advertising uh, during the World War One years was Kodak was encouraging mostly women on the home front to send, you know, images to their boys overseas to boost their morale. Uh, with the war being over, they had to tweak that messaging a bit. And as you can see from this advertisement here, the message was to document the return of the, the soldiers. You see in that advertisement there, uh, that day will never come again. The boys returning home is worth far more than merely seeing. It is worth saving. And that was very much Kodak's emphasis with the products, was document your family's lives. Never stop taking pictures of your children, of these important moments that you can preserve forever. So that's that was a big focus of their 1919 uh, marketing So from what I have gathered, there were 555 men that left Kodak Park uh, employment to join the service. Uh, Kodak um, really did a stand-up thing. They promised those people uh, jobs upon their return. Maybe not their specific job that they had had, but they did promise them a job back with the company after the war. And not only did Kodak fulfill that promise, but they also employed many uh, returning veterans that had not worked at Kodak previously. And again, because of the the war work that Kodak Park was doing, um, during the war years, they had suspended the daily tour of Kodak Park. But with the end of the war in early 1919, George Strutt there, who was the the quintessential Kodak Park tour guide, he got to resume those tours at Kodak Park. So things were getting back to, to normal once again. In the fall of 1919, they had a memorial tablet uh, erected over at Kodak Park dedicated to the 14 Kodak employees who died over in Europe. Um, this, I, I stole this picture off the internet. I think this is in Theater on the Ridge. Has anybody seen this tablet in yeah, Theater exactly. on the Ridge? I'm not positive it's still there, but you think it is, Bob? Mm-hmm. All right. I don't know.
3: It's still there. It used to be mounted outdoors. Yeah, yeah behind Building 26, yep. and then it disappeared, and then it showed up in twenty. Oh, interesting. So on the
2: sides there, you see the 555 names of the men who entered the service. And then in that center piece, the in-memoriam piece, you see the names of the 14 Kodak employees who did uh, die for their country. And so apparently, that's still up at Kodak Park at Building 28 at the, outside the theater of the Ridge. I do want to talk a moment about the, the League of Nations. Of course, President Woodrow Wilson, Democrat <laughs> President Woodrow Wilson, that was one of his 14 points at the end of World War One. He wanted there to be this United Nations-like uh, League of Nations. And initially, as you can see from the article there on the right, George Eastman at the beginning of the year was for the League of Nations. He is being reported in the papers as being one of these big businessmen that favor the League of Nations. Uh, Opposition was confined largely to those of restricted outlook, and we know that Eastman did not have a restricted (laughs) outlook. But as the details of that League of Nations uh, were were worked out, Eastman flipped. He became opposed to the U.S. entering the League of Nations under those specific um, clauses. And, uh, you know, George Eastman loved the idea of preserving peace. He liked the idea of the United States providing aid. But ultimately, George Eastman supported the Lodge Reservations, which was um, that was a scheme by the the Massachusetts uh, Republican Senator Henry Cabot Lodge. If you want to Google that, sometime look up the Lodge Reservations. It was a bunch of Republicans in Congress that were willing to join the League of Nations, but with these reservations. And George Eastman did support those uh, reservations. You know, Eastman and other Republicans didn't want the U.S. acting as a policeman for Europe and Asia. Uh, they didn't want the leap, potentially forcing America to enter the war without congressional approval, and there was some thinking that, you know, this was President Wilson's excursion into internationalism, and they didn't like that. I do have a letter here. Are these the letters? I'll pass this around, and basically, uh, George Eastman, It's very hard sometimes to get George Eastman's specific opinion on something, but this is a letter that his good friend Otto Kahn wrote in November 19, and out of all the letters that opposed the United States joining the League of Nations, Eastman called this letter the clearest and most convincing statement of the issue. So I can pass this around. You can also look at it uh, afterwards, but those are the specific reasons that Eastman did not want the United States uh, entering the League of Nations with those specific provisions. Uh, After the war, um, one of the um, organizations that was uh, put together was the Aerial Photographers Association. And George Eastman was elected as an honorary member in 1919 due to Kodak's development of aerial photography due to the Aerial School of Photography up at Kodak Park. So Eastman was very honored uh, to be considered Uh, an honorary member of that organization. And Eastman was supremely honored to get an individual letter from Edward Steichen. Steichen was one of the most foremost uh, photographers in the world, uh, a renowned modernist photographer, and this is the only letter we have from Edward Steichen to George Eastman, and he has awful handwriting. (laughs) But it says, Dear Mr. Eastman, please accept the overseas prints as an expression of appreciation of the distinguished services and generous support (laughs) rendered by yourself and the personnel of the Kodak Company in the development of American aerial photography um, in connection with the war. So we do have that uh, little note uh, on display upstairs on the second floor if you want to check that out. Not only do we have a letter thanking Eastman from Edward Steichen, but we've also got this really neat letter from Franklin D. Roosevelt. If you know anything about World War I, you know that it took America a very long time to mobilize. It took a long time for us to get our act uh, together, and because the, uh, the Navy was short of binoculars and spy glasses and telescopes, they put out this call for eyes for the Navy, for people to donate their binoculars and similar items for the war effort. Eastman ended up donating two of his personal, uh, personal binoculars for the war effort. They were returned to him when the war was done, and he got two letters, two identical signed letters from Franklin D. Roosevelt. So that was, um, of course, Franklin D. Roosevelt was then Assistant Secretary of the Navy. He went on to become New York State Governor, of course went on to become President but uh, Eastman and FDR knew each other starting with the World War I <coughs> war effort, um, and they stayed in touch over the next 13 years. Uh, so getting back to uh, Kodak, getting back to normal, when they were gonna resume their, their <laughs> consumer uh, products, they realized that they had an unprecedented demand for female health. And so what they did is they sent representatives to nearby towns, Medina, Elmira, Albion, all these surrounding towns, and to, to get women to come to Rochester to work for Kodak. At the time, Rochester was experiencing a pretty severe housing shortage, and they didn't want that to be an impediment to any of the girls coming Rochester's way. So they had a Kodak department uh, expressly devoted to finding housing for these girls attracted to Rochester. So we have this really neat uh, scrapbook in our uh, display case this year. That it's, it's a summary of the work done in the surrounding towns in order to attract them Rochester. There uh, on the screen you see an Elmira, uh, New York, advertisement. Um, But they they realized they needed about 250 girls and very quick uh, to keep up with demand. Um, So one of the thorns in George Eastman's side during this time was the government lawsuit. Kodak was um, charged with having a monopoly. This was the trust-busting era. And the government was in the midst of suing Kodak, charging them with having a monopoly when the uh, United States entered the war. So when the war was going on, that lawsuit was put on hold. But when the war was over, that lawsuit started up again and again. It did not end well for Kodak. Kodak eventually had to sell off some of its divisions, which was a a disappointment to Eastman, but he learned to, uh, to live with it. But throughout 1919, he had to go down to New York City a lot to testify. He did have a plan to go to Europe in the summer of 1919, but he was not able to because he had to go back and forth uh, in order to offer his testimony. But again, that, that this government lawsuit went against Kodak eventually. We'll talk about that in a few years. Uh, so during, <laughs> I have job security with Eastman.
3: <laughs> so uh, in 1917,
2: Eastman had helped uh, run the Red Cross fundraising drive in order to raise funds for the Red Cross. The following year, 1918, I talked about this in last year's presentation, the decision was made to bunch all of these fundraising drives together for the Red Cross, for other national organizations, for local charities. They just decided to have one big drive, um, combined effort, and they called that the war chest. And it was very successful. Rochester was one of the most successful cities in the country with their war chest. And Eastman's hope was that even with the ending of the war, he hoped that that war chest would continue. And it did. It ended up becoming the community chest, which is today's United Way. So they did um, another campaign in the spring of 1919. And it was not as successful. I mean, the war was done. People really didn't feel um, into it as much with the war being over. But they did raise uh, a million and a quarter dollars. Uh, According to Eastman, he said everyone was pretty well satisfied we scraped through. but Eastman was was a little disappointed in his Kodak employees. Uh, he says that half gave, and those who donated gave, gave half of what they were capable of. Sounds like that line on Lord of the Rings with The Hobbit. Or if but uh, a lot of people felt pressure to contribute. There were managers that were pushing their employees to buy liberty bonds, to contribute to the war chest, and if you did it, you were, you were kind of ostracized. I don't know if that necessarily came from Eastman, but it was part of that corporate culture that if you worked here, you had a responsibility to, to help fundraise. So um, I am uh, nine years removed from being in college, and I'm about to talk about socialism, communism, uh, Bolshevism, and these are generalizations that I hope I'm getting right, but I do feel the need to differentiate between these different movements as we talk about uh, the labor relations and industrial relations that we're about to talk with. Um, So socialism in general, again, this is in general, is is the idea of redistributing wealth, leveling the playing field a bit to promote equality and hopefully to eliminate social classes. Uh, The communists wanted to abolish private property, uh, in which the working class would own everything. And then you have Bolshevism, which they wanted a violent overthrow to bring about that revolution. So there is a little bit of a differentiation. And I think sometimes a 100 years removed, we can kind of blend all these things together. But they were kind of separate. And uh, one of the neat figures that I encountered while looking through George Eastman's correspondence was Katherine Brezhkovsky. Has anyone heard of her before? I, I don't blame you. I have not heard of her either. But in Russia, she is popularly known as the Babushka, the the grandmother of the Russian Revolution. She helped co-found the the Socialist Revolutionary Party, uh, which they um, were peacefully opposing the Tsar. She believed that um, the salvation of Russia really lied in educating children to be good citizens, primarily orphan children. Uh, She was a political prisoner who opposed the Bolsheviks, And she was forced to flee the country when they took power. She was a a socialist revolutionary. But in the United States, she was actually looked at uh, very kindly. She did go on a tour of the country. She did visit Rochester briefly. Eastman was not present. He was down at his hunting retreat when she came through Rochester. But he did express in letters that he wished he could have met her when she came through the area. And he picked out a camera for her. So again, he had the socialist revolutionary. But Rochester and the elite. Rochesterians uh, of his day really did look up to Catherine Breshkovsky, so she's a character that you can you can look up uh, when you get home maybe. But all this uh, um, industrial relations push that was happening at the time, it was done because of the rise of Bolshevism, All uh-huh. right. Those in the corporate world, those in the political world, just feared that you know overthrow of the uh, ruling elites coming to. America. and Eastman did anticipate that as that happened, labor conditions would grow more difficult. And to preempt that, he wanted Kodak to be a leader, not a follower when it came to industrial relations. He wanted Kodak at the top in respect to industrial relations. and so he spent a good part of 1919 researching what we would call benchmarking, getting in touch with other companies that he admired, seeing what their uh, you know welfare policies were. And um, there was a study done in 1919 that found that Kodak employees were overall uh, dissatisfied with their present wages. But Kodak got their managers together um, to talk about employee relations. They had dinners to impress upon these managers the Kodak ideals. They also met with common workers. And ultimately, this new industrial relations department under uh, WH Cameron was established in 19. And in order to... um, you know, get to the next level and to preempt and you know, prevent this rise of Bolshevism, Sympathies, in his ranks, Eastman did two things. He used a carrot, and he used a stick. All right. So the carrot, which he wisely did first, was his stock distribution scheme of uh, 1919. And as you see there, the first bullet point, I think this is worth talking about for a minute.
3: 1918,
2: 1919, George Eastman thinks that he doesn't have much longer left. And I'm not positive what that is, um, but in 1918, he writes his niece, Ellen, in Chicago, and he says, look, if if something happens to me, I want you to see it through that the School of Music is housed in my house on East Avenue. So it's something that a lot of people don't know, but the original vision that he had, at least at this time, was to have his East Avenue mansion house the Eastman School of Music. Uh, Eventually that didn't happen, and he found other quarters, but the other Uh, part here. As he says in March, 1919, I am so discouraged about the prospect of dying soon uh, that he decides to expedite the distribution of his stock among loyal Kodak employees. So he doesn't get rid of all of his stock, but this is about a third of George Eastman's stock. And what he does is he gives it to Kodak employees uh, at par. So he didn't give it to them. They had to buy it, but they bought it at par, And it was doled out in proportion to the employee's time of service. And um, the money derived, derived from the sale of those shares went to part of a, a new welfare fund uh, that was established for the benefit of all employees. And that fund was administered by a committee half composed of factory managers and half composed of common workers. Mm-hmm. And Eastman was very smart. He knew that to get their cooperation, he wanted to make them partners in the business. He wanted them to go to work every single day feeling that they had a vested interest in the success of the company. So uh, what was employees' reaction to the stock distribution scheme? I love this cartoon that appeared in their uh, internal uh, employee magazine. You just see like the, the dollar signs in their eyes, right? $6 million worth of stock available to them. And as you can see from the gentleman in their reclining chairs in the lower right, it meant cars and it meant homes. That's, that's what it meant when they got this stock.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now for the stick. All right. So, four months after distributing that stock, George Eastman issues quite a stark, poignant letter to Kodak employees. Every employee in the company received this, this circular letter in which Eastman expounds on the dangers of Bolshevism. He warns them about the poison of anarchy, of mob control. And he really tells them that Kodak's success and the employees' comfort and prosperity are intertwined. He assures them that uh, working conditions will improve, but that requires mutual confidence and cooperation, which would ultimately give them loyalty and prosperity. This letter is on display on the second floor in that uh, exhibit case. Mm -hmm. But he ends this letter, again, very starkly, saying, it's up to you. It's in your hands to strangle it, pull its fangs, kill it, meaning uh, (laughs) Bolshevism and anarchy, and I have faith that you will. Just a very, very poignant, very kind of harsh letter in which he really lays down the law. Mm -hmm. And how do employees respond this time? I was actually very moved with the response by Kodak employees. What they do is there are many, many Kodak departments that collectively essentially pledge their allegiance. They disavow anarchy, Bolshevism, socialism, etc. They uh, ensure their support is true Americans. We actually have. Uh, four or five letters like this that just go on and on with individual names uh, from workers in the Kodak company just assuring Eastman of their support. So I think if he would have done the the warning letter and then the stops gave it might not have been so good but now that they were owners in the company it went really well. So he knew what he was doing.
3: There.
2: And I did wanna I think this slide is important. Sometimes I think we can over-idealized Eastman a bit, but the fact is, is that he was human, and his opinions changed. And what his uh, opinion was on a particular subject, it really depended on when you asked him. You know, he uh, knew sometimes to bow to the inevitable. Sometimes I think he would do it with you know gritted teeth. He wasn't too happy about it. But nonetheless, you know these these reforms in industrial relations happened and again some of them he might not have been too happy with but he he bowed to the inevitable and made these changes and c e kenneth meese who was one of his close friends he was in charge of the research labs at kodak park uh one of the greatest um, things that we have up in our archive is this collection of reminiscences 15 or 20 years after eastman's passing oscar silver perform these oral interviews with really close friends of his, really close uh, business colleagues, and he amasses all these great stories that he would not get in any other way. And Dr. Meese recalls Mr. Eastman as a public speaker, uh, an activity to which shyness prevented him from being at his best. He really dreaded public speaking. Once in 1919, when the subject of Bolshevism was a live topic, he made a wonderful speech on the subject to a group of foremen at Kodak Park. (laughs) It lasted three minutes and was printed in Kodak magazine. I think that's the letter that I just showed you, that uh, Pulitz-Bang's kill letter. (laughs) The closing words were, it's up to you. Mr. Eastman, after the talk, asked Dr. Meese his opinion of it and was told it was very poor and all nonsense. (laughs) He chided, you let L.B. Jones write that speech for you instead of you thinking and speaking for yourself. So in Meese's opinion, Eastman didn't write that letter. It was an advertising agent, uh, L.B. Jones. At that time, Mr. Eastman was much concerned for this country. One of his theories was that wages should come down. In politics and economics, Mr. Eastman was a conservative. Although intellectually, Dr. Meese believes he was a profound radical. Financially, he was a very he was very conservative and of the banker type. He was not the type in later years to take risks, although he undoubtedly did so in his youth. So a few slides ago, I mentioned that there was a study that found that Kodak employees were dissatisfied with their wages. At that very same time, according to Meese. Eastman thought that wages should come down. So again, there's this tension in you know, Eastman being enlightened and becoming a better employer. I just want to convey this afternoon that it happened in degrees, all right? You just didn't wake up one morning and say, I just want to be the best employer in the world. It happened by degrees, and that shows his humanness, that he was willing to take in new information, assess it, and sometimes bow to the inevitable. Um, but people often ask me, you know, would you want to work for George Eastman? And my answer is always, it depends when, you know. <laughs> early in the Kodak days, you know, Eastman was that boss that stood outside the bathroom, you know, timing how long you were in there. So would I want to be an employee in the early Kodak days? No, no, I don't think any of us would. But would I want to work for Kodak in the 1920s and the 1930s? Absolutely. So there is a difference and a profound shift that happens. And um, again, that's that's all of us. That's human. So I want to stress that this afternoon. So one of the things uh, that he did is uh, the Kodak Park Athletic Association, they established, just to get some more camaraderie, they established a noon hour baseball game. Every day, every day when you went to Kodak, you would take your lunch, and there would be a baseball game outside. And uh, you didn't have to participate. You could just go and watch. But they did that to build camaraderie. Uh, They also established uh, a beach house up at Lake Ontario so that Kodak employees could take their kids to the beach. And for a a simple $0.15 charge, uh, you could check in your valu- valuables and get a towel and all that. But again, they're just going that extra mile to make their employees happy. Uh, Eastman did establish the uh, first field day of Kodak. Uh, they had a field day on Saturday, October 4th, at Exposition Park, which is now uh, Edgerton Park. And all the different you know buildings and factories of Kodak and individual departments had had picnics before, but this was the first big one. At the time, I think Rochester had about. 8,000 or 9,000 Kodak employees. And this was the first big event for all of them when they were uh, expected to bring their families. And as a result, it was the biggest event that Kodak had put on for its employees up to that point. Over 30,000 people showed up at Edgerton Park for athletic events, speeches, entertainment, food, prizes. And we have some pictures here. Uh, You see a cartoon there on the left, and then a picture of of the grandstand there. Um, games, tug-of-war, it was just a beautiful October day and employees had a great time that you can see uh, from these pictures. I did want to mention real quickly, um, you know, we do have an information file in our area about accidents that happened up at Kodak Park. This was one of them. There was a young girl, her name was Marion Logan and a flask of acid exploded and burned her on uh, August 15, 1919. Mm-hmm. Eastman really did take a personal interest in her care afterwards. This wasn't some you know, HR person take care of, taking care of her. Eastman was sending her regular checks, checking in on her, making sure she was okay. I think Marion did need multiple plastic surgeries, um, but they stayed in touch. And many years later, five years later, uh, Miriam thanks Eastman for all the care that he had given her for the past five years. She even invites him to her wedding. Uh, Eastman can't attend, but he sends her a, a wedding present. And that just shows Eastman's character. He, w- he was a good boss. He cared about his people. Okay. As far as Eastman's personal life, the biggest blow that he experienced, the most significant event of 19, was the death of Colonel uh, Henry Strong. Strong was very much a a father figure in Eastman's life. When Eastman was a banker, when he was young and wanted to go into photography full time, into business full time, he needed capital. And uh, that capital came from Henry Strong. And um, over the course of Kodak's history, George Eastman remained treasurer of Kodak, whereas president of Kodak was Henry Strong, Eastman's father figure, mentor, and initial investor. And they were very close. Uh, They were uh, extremely close. Some of the banter uh, back and forth with their letters, particularly in the early years, is just really funny and sweet. Uh, But Eastman said, a more staunch ally never existed. I shall miss him very much. And so it is in 1919 that Eastman does finally get to be president of Kodak after the the passing of Colonel Henry Strong. But that shook Eastman up quite a bit. Uh,
3: To
2: switch gears, um, let's talk about music. Eastman um, you know, was a very creative, energy person. He not only oversaw things at Kodak, but there were various philanthropic endeavors here locally that he would always oversee. And almost as soon as the uh, the Rochester Dental Dental Dispensary is established on Main Street and it's running on its own and it's successful, he immediately switches gears to music. And he was just like that. Once something was Uh, completed, it's on to something else. And the next big challenge for Eastman was making Rochester a better better musical city. He has this great quote in January 19, music is one of the essentials of well-rounded life in our community. So the year starts musically with uh, providing musical instruments for the Rochester City School District. Uh, The Board of Education approached Rochester in January asking for musical instruments. They didn't have the money, so Eastman obliges them. And he says, I'll pay for up to $15,000 worth of instruments for the exclusive use of the children in school bands and orchestras. And Eastman had, uh, the year before, he had purchased a struggling, failing music school in Rochester called the DKG Institute of Musical Art. And he had handed that over to the University of Rochester's music school. We know it as Eastman School of Music, but it wasn't named that yet. And so each of these instruments for the uh, Rochester City School District kids was inscribed with the property of the School of Music, the University of Rochester, given by George Eastman. And that clarinet that you see there is actually another object that's out on display on the second floor. So go take a look yeah. at it. And you can see that inscription, uh, inscription just barely on that clarinet. But uh, you know, Eastman eventually outgrew the idea of his home being the, the home for this music school. So he looked around for available properties, and he settled on Main Street and Gibbs. And it was in 1919 that he officially approved the name Eastman School of Music, and he started an endowment fund. But 1919 was spent giving shape to the School of Music and to what became the Eastman Theater. So when it came to the theater, Eastman had a radical idea. His idea was to devote the music hall, the theater, on East uh, Main Street and Gibbs. To motion pictures. How many people knew that he established it for movies? Yeah. yeah. Oh, you guys are smart. You? That's great. So his initial plan was to use the profits from the box office to go to the orchestra, and movies would be six nights a week, and concerts would be one day a week. And he viewed it as you know people would go to the movies, they would have this movie with live orchestral accompaniment, and it was kind of like a bait and switch. Then people were going to go to see the movies but their music knowledge was going to be elevated, and they were going to come to a new level of uh, musical awareness and musical knowledge, which was very important to George Eastman, but the, the bait and switch was getting them in there for the movies, but to really let them be educated musically. And so um, it was not named Eastman Theatre yet. The The working name at the time was the National Academy of Motion Pictures, Uh, But eventually they scrapped that title because they thought it was too snobby, and they just called it Eastman Theater. But again, the idea was to attract people through movies and then to make a feature of the music there. So he spends the year, um, you know, getting research, getting advice. Uh, The Peabody Conservatory of Music in Baltimore were his primary uh, consultants. At the time, they were considered the best music school in the country. Eastman, of course, wanted to outdo them, so he uh, consulted with them. And then he combined the best talent that he could find for the layout of the Eastman Theater and the Eastman School of Music. Gordon and Kelber were his local architects. The Kim, Mead, and White were the New York City architectural firm that was looked at as the best architecture firm in the country. And then he also um, got the opinion of you know some acoustics people and some engineers. And it was this combining of talent that really gave shape to the School of Music and what became the Eastman Theater. And I want to convey this afternoon that it got really heated in 1919. Uh, McKim, Mead, and White, again the best architectural firm in the country, their cooperation on that project was conditional upon the entrance to that theater being on Main Street. Eastman and Gordon and Kelber thought that it should be a corner entrance on the corner of Main Street and Gibbs. And it got really heated in 1919, so much so that by the end of 1919, Mead, and White had just walked away from the project. They, they just withdrew. And early in 1920, it got hammered out, and they came back on. But uh, there they, they came to this deadlock in 1919 over the entrance. And eventually, they worked it out. But there's a lot of heated uh, letters from
3: 1919.
2: <laughs> so, while that uh, stuff was going on, the Eastman School of Music itself was making headway, uh, even though they didn't have the permanent facility yet. Um, they were hiring faculty, students were registering, Arthur Alexander was spending the year making plans for the new orchestra, and everyone just in Rochester was excited for this new wave of music that was coming Rochester's way. Um, after um, letting go of Herman Dosenbach <coughs> for his home music house, Eastman had a new quartet. <laughs> together, uh, Arthur Hartman. Uh, it wasn't called the Kilbourne Quartet yet, but it became the Kilbourne Quartet, named after George Eastman's mother. But he, he liked changing housekeepers every once in a while. He liked changing chauffeurs every once in a while. He liked changing organists every once in a while. And this was just the musical switch that he wanted for 1919. It was a brand new quartet, and Arthur Hartman uh, headed that up. We do have an album uh, upstairs in our area that shows the the work that went on at main Main streets. So 1919 was just the demolition of the buildings that were previously there. We have a few shots of that. uh, But that demolition began in the fall of 1919. So again, uh, George Eastman's establishment of the Eastman School of Music was public knowledge. People knew about that. What wasn't known was the movie angle, the theater angle. And so when the National Association of Motion Picture Industry had their third annual meeting in Rochester in August, Eastman hosted a dinner for them at the Genesee Valley Club. It was at that event that he unveiled his plans for the $3.5 million gift, not only for the School of Music, but for the the film center and the theater. And the, the place just erupted, and the newspapers erupted, And letters begin streaming in from Rochesterians thanking Eastman for, some of them call it the temple of music that he's establishing (laughs) in Rochester. So um, yeah, letters just start streaming in. And it's very neat to see in 1919. Uh, Starting in 1912, Eastman had given some uh, financial gifts to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Some of those gifts he had done with his name attached to it. Other gifts he had given anonymously as quote unquote Mr. Smith. And the guessing game uh, persisted for years about the press was wondering who this Mr. Smith was. And Eastman threw them off by sometimes attaching his name, by sometimes using this mysterious name of Mr. Smith. And it was in the fall of 1919 that the press began to sus- have the suspicion that it was really Mr. Eastman, just by the power of deduction. You know, so and so died. They were kind of ruled out because MIT said it wasn't them. So eventually, the press just narrowed it down to Mr. Eastman, and they were correct. And it was actually in January 1920 that uh, it was officially divulged that Mr. Eastman was Mr. Smith, and the great guessing contest of eight years duration came (laughs) to an end. All right, conservatory expansion. So Eastman, by this point in 1919, had been in this mansion for uh, 14 years. He and his mother moved in in the summer of 1905. And if you've been in the mansion, you know that the centerpiece of it is the conservatory. Eastman never used uh, the term conservatory. He called it the music room, or sometimes the palm room. But that music room in the center of his residence was too square. And after 14 years of living there and having this square music room, he decided to do something about it. He decided to ultimately have the house cut in two And to have the rear part of the house moved back nine feet, four inches on rollers. And the staff here, and Kathy and I, and the docents, we always say, because it's true, that it cost more to expand his house than it did to build the mansion in the first place. But when George Eastman wanted something, he got it. And so the house was cut in two. um, And then using uh, rollers, uh, they moved it back that nine feet and four inches. Uh, It took seven hours to push the house using jacks. Eastman was away on his Western camping trip while the house was moved. So he did have uh, motion picture footage taken of the move, but it didn't turn out due to the changes of light during that seven hours. But I really wish we had that moving image uh, footage. But the actual firm that did the move was the Eichle brothers down in Pittsburgh. And years later, in an article about all the cool things that company had done, they called the moving of George Eastman's house a rather odd job. Got what he wanted. So there's some pictures here for you to look at. So you see the the track there underneath the house. What you're seeing there is the household staff porch, which is now essentially where the the Dryden Theater is. But they moved it north, just nine feet, four inches. There you see another shot of the same area, just from a wider angle. And then we've got a shot here from the other side, near the the Terrace Garden. And you can see the men at work uh, underneath it. But man, that was, that was, and Eastman was pleased with it. The end result, the, the more rectangular music room in the heart of his house, he loved it. He was so pleased with that. And yes, he could fit more people in there for the musicals that he, he did every week. So going along with that, um, Eastman uh, was very annoyed uh, in 1919 by the squeaking and the creaking and the rattling from his organ. He did have better ears than Aunt Bethany in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Um, it wasn't a squirrel in the Christmas tree; it's the organ making all that music. So every other letter in 19, Where's Joe Blackbird? Every other letter in 1919 is just complaining to Aeolian about these noises. And you know, George Eastman spent a lot of money on his organ. He expanded the organ, and he wanted it to sound good. So there's just a lot of correspondence about complaining about these, you know, squeaking, creaking, and rattling. So. Uh, one of the other things that he did in 1919 was he fired his, uh, his previous organist. Uh, George Fisher was his organist for many years. But he started promoting himself as George Eastman's personal organist. And George Eastman didn't like that self-promotion with his name attached. So he gets rid of George Fisher. And again, that's something he'd like to do every once in a while, is just find uh, new, new people. So in 1919, he <coughs> hires Harold Gleason. Gleason comes to be his personal organist, waking him up at 7 a.m. every day with live music. Eastman would go downstairs, have his breakfast, read the newspaper, smoke a cigarette with that live music, and Harold Gleason (coughs) stayed with him for a very long time, and not only came to Rochester to be his personal organist, but to head up the organ department at Eastman School of Music as well. I always enjoy uh, talking about where George Eastman traveled to, of course, George Eastman One of his favorite places to go to was his rustic hunting retreat in North Carolina. It was very typical of him for him to go down there three times a year, January, uh, the spring, and then Thanksgiving, and so he did that uh, three times visits in 1919. At the time, Eastman was very uh, consumed with his hog operation that he had going down there. He had spent a couple years buying the best Tamworth hogs and having them bred, and he had a hog-slaughtering uh, operation down there that he was very proud of, uh, supplying meat. And it, remember, during World War I there was meat rationing going on, so part of that was sort of a patriotic motivation uh, to get more meat supply. But Eastman had a, this little uh, quote here, that he had high hopes that the hog operation would make even more money than Kodak. So. <laughs> another neat thing is that um, Eastman was giving shape in 1919 to another Eastman School. Here in Rochester, when we hear the term Eastman School, we automatically think of the School of Music. But uh, down in North Carolina, where the um, African-American tenants lived on his Oak Lodge property, Eastman built a school for their children. He wanted their labor situation to improve. He wanted them not to be taken advantage of. He wanted them to get some real life skills. So he spent the year giving shape to the North Carolina Eastman School. And there you see the Myrick family. Myrick, uh, Henry Myrick there on the right was his um, foreman at Oak Lodge that took care of the place while Eastman was away. And when you see the pictures of George Eastman and his you know, elite, rich, uh, you know, white friends that go down there, they love these kids. They're always scooping up the kids and holding them. And you can just tell there's a lot of affection. And Eastman wanted to give them good educational opportunities down there in North Carolina. Um, again, because he couldn't go to Europe as a result of the, um, the testimony that he had to give, Eastman did have to uh, uh, get away every now and then just with a quick uh, motor trip for two or three days. Uh, in July, he and his good friends go on a 944-mile trip uh, down to Pennsylvania, and they really, really meandered because it's not you know 400 miles there, it's like 200. They did a lot of meandering along the way, and Eastman had a picnic outfit that would go perfectly into his Packard automobile. And they would just pull over on the side of the road and have a picnic, and they might show up at a farmhouse to ask for some milk and butter. But that's just how things were, were done back then. But Eastman really, really enjoyed Uh, driving around and uh, motoring around. Mm -hmm. So every summer, Eastman usually went on a very rigorous camping excursion. Uh, He usually went on these big camping trips for four, five, six weeks at a time. And up until 1919, Eastman's favorite place uh, to camp in the world was the Jackson Hole region of Wyoming. But starting in the, the World War I years, Eastman began to conclude that the area was getting settled too fast. The civilization was encroaching on the wild country, that there was very little <laughs> space left to enjoy. And so, again, sticking with this theme of expansion, Eastman began looking for a new frontier. He began looking for uh, a, new, a new place to camp. Eastman was always looking for good fishing, water, and timber. And after flirting with the idea of Idaho, eventually he decided on the Kootenay region of British Columbia. You can see uh, from that picture there why he decided to go there. And Eastman only goes to Wyoming one more time, I think, for nostalgia's sake. But for his next, for his last full decade, when he goes out west to go camping, it's really to British Columbia and Alaska. He had found the, the really wild west, as he called it. So uh, that's the region they went to in 1919. We don't have any pictures from this excursion. I wish we did. I always enjoy showing uh, the summer camping trip photos. But his good friend took the pictures on this trip, and we don't have any. Um, Eastman took a lot of pride in the fact that, according to him, no human being had been in that locality since the beginning of the war. So he took great pleasure and checking out this region where no human had stepped in about five years. Uh, So we don't have any pictures from that trip, but we do have his camping diary of camp locations. And in the back of this diary is also a list of recipes. And if you head to the second floor sitting room, there's actually an iPad iPad there where you can swipe through and see some of his recipes. Uh, Get the recipe for macaroni and cheese. It's a good one, um, but through this diary, you see what a typical you know uh, wilderness life meal was. And a typical breakfast for Eastman out on the trail was grapefruit, bacon, coffee. Uh, a typical lunch was ham, pork, jelly cakes. A uh, typical dinner uh, was beef, hash, biscuits, mince pie. I'm really making myself hungry. Um, but yeah, a lot of those recipes you can actually get those upstairs on that iPad. Um, in 1919 Universal Pictures approached George Eastman wanting to make a movie about his life and of course George Eastman, who shuddered every time that he saw his name in print in a national magazine, he said no, you know it's no surprise but Eastman turned them down he said, I just I'm not into that kind of thing. but that's an idea that's never gone away. I mean sometimes we do get Hollywood uh, screenwriters that approach us asking us you know to Come research to make a movie. Nothing has ever really happened, but there have been several starts and stops, but someday we'd love to have a motion picture made of George Eastman's life. Uh, D.W. Griffith, who was one of the more popular and, of course, uh, controversial filmmakers of the early Hollywood era, he actually invited George Eastman to his Rochester premiere of his new movie, Broken Blossoms, in October 1919. Um, George Eastman, this was his favorite movie at this point. Eastman loved this movie. He thought this film more than any other film he had seen really revealed the power of motion pictures. Um, And especially as he was about to embark on this Eastman theater movie proposition, he thought this movie would really educate the masses on what motion pictures were capable of doing. If George Eastman had friends that were not fans of movies, he would recommend this movie. He would be, have you seen Broken Blossoms yet? Mm -hmm. So it's completely odd timing, just completely odd and uh, coincidence. But that movie is playing at the Dryden Theater Tuesday at 7.30. (laughs) So it's just a neat uh, coincidence. But I would urge you to attend Tuesday at 7.30 and see George Eastman's favorite movie, Mm -hmm. at least his favorite movie. Uh, in 1919. <laughs> so the year ends, like most other years, end with a big New Year's party. Uh, he had a party on New Year's Eve for uh, you know people his age, other prominent Rochesterians. They had 235 people. And um, they had Ricardo Strockiari and Maggie Tate perform The Secret of Suzanne. And uh, the following day, January 1st, he put on a young people's party for his grandnephew and grandniece, ages 17 and 15, who are here from Chicago. So he let them bring some of their young friends from Chicago. And then Eastman also invited 150 local boys and girls uh, under the age of 18 to give them as good a time as possible, he says. So two parties, um, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Uh, There is the conservatory set up for the secret of Suzanne. I can't promise you that that's December 31st. 1919, because I think he did have that play here more than once, uh, but then we also had this neat letter from his grandnephew, George Eastman Dryden, and in this letter he says, I want you to know what a perfect Christmas I had in Rochester. It was the most wonderful I have ever had anywheres. The young people uh, party certainly was grand. I want to thank you for letting Oliver and I use the cars and for all those thousands of <laughs> other things you did for us. The fur coat is just the article to wear here because it is so warm and it is so cold here. At the time, he was going to school in Minnesota, and he loved that fur coat that he got from Uncle George. (laughs) So here's a little preview of next year. Uh, We'll be examining, of course, 1920, and I think there's another theme here. I think the term that I'll use next year is, the fun is in the game. And that's one of my favorite quotes about George Eastman, and it's in regard to just the working out of the details for the things that he was interested in. Of course, George Eastman was interested in the end result, you know, the the Rochester dispensary, or the School of Music, or the Strong Hospital, but the fun for him was in the working out of all those details. And, um, you know, as 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 a very value-driven person, I kind of like that part of George Eastman. I, myself, if I'm not part of you know, a band of people trying to better the community and brainstorming and hatching schemes. You know, I need that in my life, and so I definitely relate to that part of Eastman as well. But the fun for him was in the game; it was the game of just working out all the details. So, what was going on in 1920? Uh, he was, you know, he emerges as a national figure figure when he is revealed to be Mr. Smith. Uh, he takes his trip to Japan, which is his only trip uh, to Asia. So, we'll spend a good part of next year talking about. Um, his Japan trip and all the really neat souvenirs that he came back with. Uh, we're also going to explore the beginnings of the medical school at Strong Memorial Hospital, which is named after uh, his mentor and investor who had just died. And the Rochester uh, Dental Dispensary undergoes their first tonsillectomy marathon that year. He wanted to remove every childhood tonsil in Rochester. So that'll be a fun thing to talk about next year. And then, flipping the script to talk about Kodak, uh, it's in 1920 that they. Uh, establish a chemical laboratory in Tennessee. Um, during World War I, a lot of their chemicals and raw materials were too hard to find because they came from Europe, so uh, a repercussion of that is trying to make their own raw materials and chemicals, and they did that in Tennessee, and then it's the centennial of, of the formation of ESL. So lots to be excited about. If you haven't seen it yet, I encourage you to go on the second floor to the sitting room and check out the exhibit, where many of these objects are on display. And like I said, there's an iPad there on the end where you can flip it and actually see those those recipes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'll open it up to to questions. Any questions
1: Yeah. Uh, This isn't so much a question, but I think probably just two coincidences. The, the organist that was
3: furloughed, and then the new organist that came in. The outgoing organist, uh,
1: George Fisher. What I think that was the same name as the CEO that was brought in. As they, oh, that's well.
3: oh, yeah, <laughs> true. It, it, is,
1: it is, yeah, yeah.
3: And then the um, the new organist was Lisa. Like the you know, Yeah, uh, no, Lisa works. Right, Across the right, right. you know other yeah. side of university. Of yeah, I, that's, I assume that's just another. Concept. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah Joe. Okay. We don't put you on the spot and expect you
2: to know
1: what the secret of Suzanne was, but I am kind of curious uh, what
3: her secret
2: was. uh, Sounds like you know. I go ahead. I
1: The secret is that she smoked, and because she was always leaving the room of her married home and coming back smelling like smoke, her husband thinks she's having an affair. So it's this whole thing of trying to expose her, and in reality she's just...
0: Bless your heart, you knew the
1: answer. (laughs) Uh, very timely, 20, uh, just, uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, yes. Uh, let's go back to the um you're talking about hiring the young women yeah. for, for uh, Kodak. Um I think that's great. What was was the impetus gender equality or was it because he felt that, you know, men needed to have women in the workforce or I mean, you know, what what was his when thinking about about yeah, it's, about it's,
2: it's important to note that <laughs> It was a hundred years ago. Times were very different. I right. suspect it was the latter, and to be honest, I think they could pay them less money. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, that's my suspicion. Can't prove it, but uh, those kind of secretarial jobs that yeah. they needed, they just tended to hire women for for them. So, okay. yeah. This is, my, this is my guess. Judy, did you have a, a question? No. No. Oh. Anybody else? No.
3: Yeah. There, of curious. You hear about the expansion of management a lot. We don't hear about any like real you know, problems or obstacles or damage caused. It's hard to believe that they moved this whole mm-hmm. half of the mesh you know. I <clears throat> didn't cause
2: any damage to any of the structure. I've never seen any correspondence mm-hmm. that says anything was damaged. Eastman was just through the roof with the result. He had had 14 years of frustration with the Square Conservatory, <laughs> and he was finally liberated and had more room for his guests. So I, I haven't heard any uh, horror stories about us. But, but it's astonishing that they could move that part of the house. Yeah. I often
3: wonder why he's so...
2: Well, I mean, that's that's a frequent question that we get. You know, I think early on, George Eastman was so consumed with photography that he just didn't have time for family life. And by the time he made it and was a millionaire, he figured that you know women might have been after him for his money. Um, He did have a a young girlfriend, Susan Brown, who left Rochester uh, to pursue music at Juilliard. And some people surmise that's one of his hidden motivations for making a school of music here later, so that Rochester wouldn't have to lose people like her. Um, you know, close to his death, he got back in touch with Susan Brown, and they exchanged some really cool letters. But early on, you know, I've, I've seen many letters. Uh, from Eastman in his early days, when he's traversing Europe, and he's just remarking to his mother, "Oh, there's so many beautiful women over here." So uh, I think early on, you know, he was, you know, very much, uh, you know, attracted to women, and you know, had a girlfriend. But he just kind of pursued other things, and you know, as an introvert, as a as a famous introvert, he just kind of shied away from mm-hmm. that kind of thing later in his life. Yep. Yeah. Uh, didn't they have trouble getting uh,
0: uh, some property on Main Street for the, for the School of Music was, did, did that uh, do you have uh, does that happen in 1919?
2: Yeah, it's in 1919 that there's some building, I can't say who it was or who owned it, but some building like, right on that spot that would, they would sell to Eastman for a, for a price that Eastman thought was way too expensive. So he said all right. Have to fit it here where it is, and um, you know that that frustrated everybody, particularly McKim, Mead, and White, making this grand theater on this little kind of awkward position spot. And it you know it is kind of an awkward spot, but I think they did it marvelously. So I look forward to the centennial uh in 2022. 20, Lots to celebrate coming up in the years ahead.
3: Yeah. They eventually got it back. I mean now there's something built. Oh yeah, yeah. It corresponds with these reviews. Yeah, definitely. Yep, yeah, Yeah, I was wondering about the Eastman Community School for Music. How did that fit into the story? The Community? The Community School for Music. For, is this a new word, new concept? Uh,
2: for me, Kathy. you. Me,
1: uh, <laughs> well, the, the Community School that they have now is a separate sort of entity and stuff, but um, I think I don't know if they had one for the community before. Sibley Music Library used to be a lone library school. Kids could go there and actually borrow music and whatever. So it was more of a center area where people who wanted to learn an instrument, wanted to sing, could borrow things. But the actual community music school that they now have, I don't think that concept existed back then.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Any other questions, yeah? Not a question, but I have a, uh, you probably have one here, the program from the opening, grand opening of the theater. And in reading through it, one of the features it describes of the theater was being able to project movies with the house lights on. For the purpose of uh, avoiding the moral hazard of people sitting in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I've seen that. Uh, I, think, I think I've seen some correspondence about,
2: you know, lighting experts being called in. Yeah, it took a lot of. Uh, even C.E. Kenneth face was involved with some of that lighting research. I noticed the lights
3: around the. That's fine. Yeah, uh, yeah, go ahead. So, after Henry Albersstrom died, Eaton became president of Coding. When did he actually retire?
2: Uh It's either 24 or 25. 25. Yeah. 25 he retires.
3: Mm -hmm. Okay. So he retires 71. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In the days before Megabus, how did George Eastman get back and forth to New York when he was going all those times? And do you know where he stayed?
2: Uh, The train, obviously, is uh,
3: is how we got there. Um, No chauffeur driven?
2: No, not when he needed to get there quicker. And it was very common for him to get a night and train and just show up at New York in the morning, which is, that's how I do it when I go down to New York State. And I just take a bus at night. Um, but I think the Belmont, um, is, there, is there a Belmont down right. there? Yeah, that the name rings a bell. Um, yeah? Supposedly,
3: going Eastman called that company commissioned some author to write a book either about George Eastman or Kodak, which was never published.
2: Do you have access to that book? We have, so there were two or three uh, potential biographies that Kodak had sort of commissioned, and there were researchers that had access to George Eastman's letters back in the 50s. Oscar Silmer himself did all these oral interviews. And for whatever reason, I can't tell you why, but they never went through with publishing of those articles. One uh, author, Roger Butterfield, did a lot of research. We have his notes. We have his transcriptions of letters. But the final result of his work was just a centennial uh, publication in 1954 for Life magazine on George Eastman. And it's a great article, but it, it doesn't replace you know, the biography that could have been, because uh, he did a lot of research. Where are these materials sitting? Uh, so we have the, the Butterfield uh, in our in our collection, and U of R has some other materials.
1: It's rummett, it's rummett yeah, that's the
2: other name, Drummond. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah.
3: Oh, over here. Uh, you mentioned the head of the Kodak Research Department, the yep. yep. Do you know how long he was there at Kodak? Oh, he. I mean,
2: he was there for a long time. Yeah, how long was Mies there for, you Todd,
1: know? can you help us? I'm not exactly... Bob, can you can help he,
3: us? He came, to, he came to the United States in the summer of 1912. 12, right. And started the research lab at that point. Yeah. He died in 1960. When did he retire? He retired to Hawaii, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a, there's a, solar, there's a yeah. T- solar telescope there with his name on it. Oh, in Hawaii. Oh,
1: my God. Oh. Oh, <clears throat> Sorry, my grandfather. I was the general contractor contract to build the house, and I was always under the impression that they didn't get the job to move the house, but when you wrote the description
2: uh, of this, it said gave that company, you uh, Are you related to the
3: Friedrichs? Yeah. So, okay.
2: Um, yeah, I don't think the Friedrichs had anything to do with the uh, conservatory expansion. I do. I do think Eastman liked kind of giving different jobs to different People And, and I, I know I've seen a letter from Mrs. Friedrich where she's pleading with Eastman, please hire my husband, but Eastman <laughs> sets out the reasons that, yeah. you know, and it's not because he's mad at Mr. Friedrich or anything like that. It's just that he wanted to, to divvy it up, so to speak. But yeah, come in sometime and I'll, I'll show you that letter. Any other uh, questions? Yeah? The, uh, <clears throat> what became the Eastman School of Music,
3: it was the UBCG or whatever it was, the yep. Institute yes. of the yes. <clears throat> Uh, Juilliard used to be called the Institute of Musical Art. Oh that when you mentioned the yeah. woman moved away. Yeah. Um but what was uh how long have they been
2: around or what what's the background with them? Uh, uh man, Lisa Clemen, are you here? Lisa's not here. Uh do you know Kathy? What
1: was the question I asked?
2: Can you elaborate on the DKG Institute of Musical Art and how long they were around before going floundering?
1: Uh, we have a big file folder on them in the collection, and they were around for quite a long time in Rochester, but were not doing very well, which yeah. is why Mr. reason bought them pretty cheap and then ended up making things in school. Yeah. Did, in, did they have dormitories and stuff, or was it just <coughs> had, you know,
3: know. well, uh, afternoon lunch practice sessions? And I, I
2: think they had a, a mansion or a house, you know, near downtown that the Klingenberg elf Klingenberg operated. Um, yeah, I, don't, I don't. know the size of it or
1: how So it's sort of like what the Eastman School was going to be like when it was going to be here instead
2: yeah, yeah. Of, you know, And I and I should have mentioned this. Um, does anybody remember what swept through America in 1918 yeah, when we talked the, about it? Right, the flow the flow. Spanish yeah. flu. That's right. And I remember um, you know Eastman in this 1918 letter and this 19 letter, 1919 <laughs> letter talks about how he doesn't think he has much longer left. And I did find a letter where Eastman's personal physician Edward Mulligan has a suspicion that Eastman caught like a tail end minor case of the Spanish flu. And it does stay with him, because most of 1919, and certainly in 1920, Eastman is complaining about his throat all the time, some laryngitis, a severe cold that will not go away, so much so that he actually considers not going to Japan the following year. But uh, uh, Dr. Mulligan's suspicion is that Eastman caught a little bit of that that Spanish flu, just kind of hung on and wouldn't
3: let go for a while. Yeah? Yeah, you mentioned uh, quite often that you have read a lot of Eastman's letters. Are there still a lot that you've never seen?
2: So when I I spent three and a half uh, years cataloging George Eastman's letters in our collection, and just when you're, when you're looking at 49,804
3: <laughs> letters, uh, you don't
2: have time to read them all. But So I, I indexed them. I wanted to make a definitive record of what we had in our collections. So I, made, made, I made note of the date of the letter, whether it was handwritten or typed, how many pages it comprised, who wrote it. And then I quickly just skimmed the letter just to see what they're talking about. So I, I didn't have, it was not within the scope of the project to read every letter. And Kathy always teases me that I get to read letters all the time, which I would. Uh, quirk with a little bit but uh, uh, yeah so uh, I skimmed up just to see what the letter was about and created a really good finding aid that, is, that has revolutionized how people do the research but uh, it's our goal to put those online so I won't be the only one uh, looking at those things so stay tuned
3: that's
2: the goal yeah. yeah they've already started photographing them, so so we'll see any other questions